Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. I'm Tom Nolan, a clinical editor for the BMJ and a GP. In today's episode, I'll be talking to the authors of a recent article in the BMJ that offers five strategies to help clinicians improve their diagnostic skills. We decided to take a break from our usual format so we can go into more depth and take a look at these tips with the authors. Whether you're a regular GP listener or from another clinical background, there should be plenty here that's relevant to your everyday practice. So let's go straight into it and hear the five strategies to achieve diagnostic excellence. So my name is Hardeep Singh. I'm a general internist uh, and a patient safety researcher and a professor at Baylor College of Medicine and at the Houston VA. And way back when, before I did all the research, I was a practicing full-time primary care doc. Oh, great. Well, that's the most important part. <laughs> um, morning. Um, I am Denise Connor. She, her pronouns. Um, and I am here at UCSF and at San Francisco VA. Um, Associate Professor of Medicine, Internal Medicine is um, all my practices in the hospital um, because I am too inefficient uh, to be a primary care doctor. I wish that I could be one. And I sometimes think about moving over there, but I just am very slow. So that's why I work in the hospital. Um, and I'll pass to your brief. That's very honest of you, but we, we would never dream of, um, of saying such things about our, our secondary care colleagues. My name is Gurpreet Dhaliwal. I'm a general internist also at the San Francisco VA and the University of California, San Francisco. Um, I'm a full-time clinician educator and I spend my time in three settings. Uh, I work in the emergency department, I work in the hospital wards, and I spend time in the general medical clinic. Great. And I think emergency emergency doctors uh, are the most efficient of all, aren't they? Quick decisions. <laughs> Definitely have to move fastest in that of the three environments, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. Uh, but of course, we see sort of clinical error and um, scope to improve our, our decision making in, in all of this, don't we? Um, and you've written this article for the BMJ called Five Strategies for Clinicians to Advance Diagnostic Excellence, which is a very positively um, phrased uh, t- title. Um, and you, all, you each have an interest in this area. Can you maybe just give us a bit of an overview of, of where you've come to, how you've come into this uh, topic over your careers? Um, Hardeep, if you want to go first. Sure, thanks. So, um, Tom, as I mentioned, I was a practicing doc in rural East Texas for many years before I became a researcher. And what I realized is there's so many types of things we do as GPs, as primary care docs that we could do better on. Um, So I started studying the topic of diagnostic error um, many years ago and realized there's a lot of things to do with the system. And certainly we can't have the conversations amongst ourselves about errors. And so over the last 10 years, I have started to look at the way how clinicians can, you know, get into diagnostic excellence and change the conversations from, you know, the word errors um, and even I've been through missed opportunities in care, um, trying to find the right language so that Mm. primary care docs, ER docs, and all of us can start to sort of converse about this topic in a much more, so much more sort of natural and um, non-punitive fashion. Right. Um, so this term, diagnostic excellence, is a very deliberate. You're trying correct. to reframe it and, and make us think. <laughs> yeah, and and then the research has showed that we're we're we don't like talking about errors as doctors. Mm. Um, it's uncomfortable. It gets into the core identity of us as clinicians. Some clinicians call it taboo. They feel that it's a very blame um, mm. culture. Um, so over the last ten years, I've moved away from thinking about it, even though the, we use the word error in the paper, um, this is more about improvement, how mm. to get better, how to make yourself strive towards excellence. Yeah, yeah, and it's a very positive piece in that sense. We'll, we'll, we're gonna move on quickly to the, the practical points very soon, but uh, Denise, what about you? How, you? how do you get into all this? Um, it's hard to say after Hardeep, but I, I think for me, it does have to do with error. So it has to do with you know being a resident and making mistakes and mm. just being so crushed by that. Um, and I was lucky to have um, Gurpreet as one of my attendings and um, mentors during residency. And I just loved listening to the way that he kind of broke down what is the process of thinking that we're actually going through um, when we're seeing a patient and talking with them. 
And I found that fascinating and like having experienced error in my own, um, my own, you know, patient care, I felt like, well, maybe this is, this is the way that I can continue to improve rather than just say, let me just keep reading, just read more, um, which is what people often say, um, being able to say, well, how do I actually intentionally practice, um, break down and practice this process of reasoning? And how do I also talk about it with other people? How do I get feedback on it? Um, So that's really why I started being interested in this. And then the other half is just as a teacher, I found it really helpful to be able to talk to my students and my residents um, about this process in this way. So, yeah. Right. Well, go pre- no, no, no pressure then. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I am honored uh, to have, have been and to be a mentor to Denise, but also a, a colleague. And we've collaborated on many projects. Um, and I have probably similar origins to what Hardeep and Denise said. I actually started with a very uh, strong interest in how doctors become excellent in clinical reasoning. Um, in almost the internal cognitive story of what goes in our mind. And that quickly leads to areas of how you train your brain, how we strive for excellence in our career. And so I study those areas, uh, but sometimes error is the flip side of excellence. And, and so you have to face that as well, as Denise said, in our practice or in our teaching. Um, and so that I try to uh, study both sides of the story and diagnosis. Mm. And yeah. I think it's made me a better clinician and made me a better teacher. Yeah. One thing that often comes up in this area, at least at least it came up through the the process of, the, of this article, was that that tension is it tension between the individual, you know, and actually sometimes it, it is or it feels like it's my my fault I make the mistake versus the uh, the system that often seems like it's working against you, almost trying to trying to make you make mistakes and or or not not promoting excellence. Is it, can you say something on that? You know, we started looking at this clinician versus system-centric point of view for, um, you know, back when I started researching the topic, quickly realized that um, a lot of system factors such as, you know, the usual chaos in our practice, time pressures, productivity pressures, all the processes around us and the policies, they all make a difference in how we practice medicine. And so I started thinking, I was sort of like Gurpreet, I went to a medical school in India, which where diagnostic excellence was the thing um, of becoming a clinician. And I'm thinking, this is not all about my brain. It's nothing about, yes, I can read and become excellent in my thinking, but the system is making me change decisions based on the way I'm practicing, you know, because if I'm not gonna have more than 10 minutes patient, I'm gonna stop thinking. And so I started becoming very interested from the system point of view. So um, again, I, I, there is hardly any times that we can distinguish the two. Mm-hmm. So in our work, we actually realized that it's almost always together. Yeah. Um, clinician factors or cognitive factors are almost always working in synchrony or being influenced by the system in which we practice. It, just like Hardeep said, it's both, right? Like both ends of the spectrum are, are important. And I think what can be, happen if we focus only on the system is that individual clinicians feel disempowered to do anything. And if we focus only on the individual clinician, then we create this punitive, you know, very not um, not growth oriented mindset for people. So I just feel like being able to see that it's actually both and um, in all of the things that we do is so important. And I'll add my personal reflection, which I'm so glad to have both of these colleagues here with me because I started my journey with what I think you would call a very cognitivist or individualistic thing, which is diagnosis is something that happens just inside the physician's mind. It's a very naive um, mindset, but I had that at the get-go and it was very effective. But I think work from people like Hardeep and his colleagues have shown us that the environment and the system and the EMR influence what's Mm. happening in my mind as a generalist. And then Denise's work, which I hope we'll get to touch on later, has shown me how sort of historical and social contexts of the work are in the exam room, even when I think it's just me Mm. and a patient um, interacting. So there's a much broader purview on diagnosis. I'm thinking of sort of those first jobs in, in, in hospital where you perhaps going from this very like, you know, it, diagnosis is a thing that, that's on paper and you just need to know the right things and then you, the diagnosis will come out. And then maybe that was part of <laughs> what I struggled to come to terms with was, you know, it, it didn't really work like that in reality, does it? Because of the, the environment you're in. 
I think part of that is why people think sort of computers will be able to do it, the AI, you know, that it's just a computational and categorization task. And when you frame it that way, it seems like it should be super easy for a computer to do. But all these other complexities mm. that we touched on make it much more challenging for humans and computers. Mm. You've outlined five strategies in this paper that we can go through in turn. And we'll get right onto that after this message from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Okay, now on to our five strategies to improve diagnosis. And our first one is seek diagnostic feedback. Who's going to tell us about that? I'll start with the feedback one. And um, this feedback loop, uh, closing the feedback loop is something we've been trying to figure out how to do this better because, you know, most clinicians would see the patient and sometimes you never hear back about what happened. So I might, as an ER doc, see a patient, but I never heard what happened to them after you know, a couple of months, um, even though I may have admitted them to the same hospital or maybe I discharged them home. And so we've been thinking about if we can create performance feedback back to the clinician, just like other professions do, like athletes do, they learn a lot from feedback, right? So many professions that are doing really well on learning from feedback and getting better. In fact, psychology, there's lots of um, literature that shows that you can improve with feedback on your own performance. And we think there's two ways we could do this as clinicians. One of them is you could generate feedback for yourself. Um, you could maintain some lists of patients that you're very uncertain about, complicated patients, very interesting patients that you didn't get an answer on. Or the second way you could do this is you solicit feedback from somebody else. So from a colleague, patient, and that's where I think we definitely have a lot of room for improvement because this is where my earlier conversation about having a conversation with difficult conversation with a colleague about, you know, tell me about this. Uh, um, did you hear about that patient that you saw? Uh, some colleague has often stopped me and saying, you know, the patient that you discharged, um, let me tell you what happened. And so that is one way to do it. But you could also structure the feedback where, um, you know, you could be in a setting where you could get non-punitive feedback from a superior, uh, from let's say the hospital learns about a case that you were on things didn't go right how do you structure that feedback so i learn i make this a learning opportunity so there's many ways to do it better and we've been trying to explore this in a research setting how can somebody else come talk to me so it doesn't feel threatening Hmm. that's the key yeah because whenever someone stops me and says oh tom you know that patient you saw last week you know i get that oh no what's it gonna be and it's both sides, you know, clinicians, there's actually been a very nice study that shows clinicians are fearful of not just getting feedback, but also yeah. giving feedback. And giving it to you, ter- I, I, I rarely do that. Yeah. yeah. And we don't do that very often. So this is what we've been trying to change. So we're hoping that, you know, uh, folks will look at that strategy and try to adapt it again looking at from themselves or it's also about you know, culture and norms and it's fine it's great when like you happen to run in someone in the hallway and they tell you something and that happens from time to time but if we don't like integrate this into our 
usual day to day, like in a way that people are expecting and a way that becomes just like the, the norm, then it's not going to be very effective. So in our group, um, we've been talking lately about at our weekly uh, faculty meetings, like let's build in five minutes for feedback. Like, let's just do that at every meeting. It'll be painful at first, but if we get used to it and it's just sort of the norm and the expectation, then the emotional valence hopefully will come down and it'll just be part of our day to day. And I don't know if that's the answer, but I do think the, the idea of integrating this into expectations um, is really important. I love that idea. I, I was laughing at that point about, do you remember there's a, there's a Ted talk and I can't remember, but that's what the person says. So the, uh, the doctor's three dreaded words are, do you remember? <laughs> because dot, 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 it's almost always going to follow is a story about something that's gone awry. And it does underscore this point that if we are going to get in the habit, either individually or institutionally to give diagnostic feedback, it should be about the good diagnostic outcomes as well, right? We want to encode accurate and efficient diagnostic pathways. Like remember that patient that you admitted uh, for cellulitis, that was exactly the diagnosis. He did not have a DVT and he got better two yeah. days later. Um, I really appreciated that you gave yeah. neurospectrum antibiotics. If we, and if we only hear the negative feedback or, or, or ponder on the, the mistakes, I suppose, does that introduce, you know, more error or, you know, you go too far the other way in terms of the, the, few, the next patients you see? That's really a challenge. So if you keep telling me that I missed spinal epidural abscess on a couple of patients, next thing I'm going to do is start ordering MRI on everybody. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we're always fearful that if we give feedback, which is one-sided, uh, it will induce problems. So I totally agree with Gurpreet's point that it you have to get positive as well as uh, negative feedback. Yeah. must learn uh, all about excellence as well. Yeah, I, I, I've been doing some work in different practices recently. Um, and I guess, can you give me any tips? Because I'm, I'm, you know, quite sort of in that environment, quite sort of passive and meek, and I don't want to go and like, uh, <laughs> go and upset the apple carts and, and upset anyone. How, how do I just, do I just need to go up and just be, be very upfront and say, you know, I, I saw this patient you saw and, you know, I wasn't sure why you did X, Y, or Z. Is, is, do you just need to be a bit bolder about this? And I mean, yeah, what tips? I think you start with asking feedback for yourself. I think before you start dishing it out, being able to say, hey, I'm really working on this. Would love it if you could be like someone that I could come to to get feedback. And like, if you are modeling that um, humility, I feel like it's a lot easier for then somebody else to hear your feedback. That's my, that's my yeah. feeling. I, I agree, Tom. I, we're developing a resource uh, with AHRQ. It's the United US um, agency that works on quality and safety to help clinicians exactly like you. Um, the resources in development, but what it does, it, it gives you a structured way to solicit feedback on your own performance, looking at your own records, and then going and talking to colleagues and asking them, tell me about the last five cases that I've just reviewed of this condition or this situation, and tell me a little bit more about my thinking. And then you'll get both that excellent feedback that you did really great on this and then you could have done better you should have really ordered that test on that patient to get the cancer diagnosis much earlier mm -hmm. and we're trying to do this except this you know with our work we're getting a little bit of a legal pushback if you will because the conversations might get into the word error and mm -hmm. mistakes so we're also working with the lawyers and the risk management folks in order to make sure that we can disseminate this guidance across US because we don't want to start getting pushback from mm. you know, all the systems and doctors saying, well, we can't talk to clinicians because the lawyers tell us not to talk to them because we may have made a mistake. Is that right? Is that, is that obviously being, being UK based, is, it, is this a particular thing about practicing in the US? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, I mean, I can mention there was uh, four health systems we approached and three agreed and one said, nope, this is too risky for us. We don't want to talk, have clinicians talk to each other about this. Mm. So we're, we are up against challenges, but we're sort of handling it slowly and making, making slow but good progress. We'll talk about system backfiring, though. <laughs> That's the exact opposite, right? Of what a patient who experiences an error would want. Like, okay, let's not ever talk about it or get better. That's really sad. 
Tom, may I add one practical point about feedback? Uh, just when we, whether it's us tracking our own um, diagnostic performance or getting diagnostic performance, that sometimes there's a tendency, probably because of our um, you know orientation as professionals, to track the unusual or tricky cases. Like you know, I wonder if this was you know a sarcoidosis or a rare immunologic phenomenon or um, perhaps a lot other less common diseases. But really, what we need, and I learned this from my own experience uh, when I started tracking my performance many years ago, is you need to track the common stuff. Like was that a bacterial or a viral pharyngitis? Like was that CHF or was that pneumonia? Was that gout or cellulitis? Um, because there's many, many more patients in the future who need me to uh, get more and more accurate around those decisions. So while there is the temptation to track the unusual and extra challenging, oftentimes the growth point comes in the day-to-day -day yeah. challenges. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose it, you might set up a, a search or on your health record system or Excel spreadsheet, that sort of thing. Is that those are sort of tools you can make up yourself? Or, or, are there any out there that you can recommend? I think there's simple, there are some people in systems where the EMR makes it easy. There are other people who use their own digital devices and take whatever information security steps are necessary to do it. Even old paper um, and pen works yeah. just fine if you have a, a place to store it. I think the key thing is there's two parts to it. One is the habit of uh, recording and that has to be a habit and the other is the habit of mm. checking and those are two separate steps if it's an individual pursuit but you have to work both of those into the routine uh, but the reward of course is the learning yeah. that comes from it and have the time and uh, and energy <laughs> to, to do it well Shall we move on to, to the next one then? And that's uh, bite-sized learning. Um, so I th I think you picked up on our, our intended clever play on words that we think in terms of learning that it should be both small and digital um, if we're trying to make it efficient in day-to-day -day practice of clinicians. So bite-sized learning is the idea that we all are inspired to get better and better um, and you'll enhance our knowledge and um, to improve our diagnostic performance. But actually finding the time and place to do that is rather challenging. and. And um, rather than having a fantasy of I'll set aside study time every week, um, we are trying to advocate based on both pragmatism of daily practice and really what the learning and education sciences say is to get small challenges on a daily basis um, to improve your diagnostic mm. skills. Mm. Uh, and, and in the UK, at least, um, a lot of um, students and a lot of learning for exams is actually done through these some multiple choice questions and you know, just doing endless banks of questions. Is that, is that, is that then a good thing? Is that a helpful thing from a, from a diagnostic point of view? It is in the sense that that is the, the most brain friendly and effective way to learn. You know, if we talk to practicing clinicians who have surpassed that phase of life where you're taking tests all the time, you still need to maintain knowledge and mm. get new knowledge. And um, the science is very clear that instead of rereading things over time, you have to challenge your brain in a spaced way, in a way that you have to pull things from long-term memory. And while the multiple choice question sounds like it's a school-based uh, method, it's actually a very effective lifelong method to say, do I understand this concept? Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna underscore that and say, um, I think it's the active element of the learning that's so important for me in my day-to-day. Because if, for example, like I love to listen to a podcast, but if I listen to a podcast and afterwards I don't take a minute to like jot down a note, or if I read an article and I don't take a minute to like, just think, okay, what am I, what's the one thing I want to take away? Um, then it just goes in one ear and out the other. So I have like developed systems on my phone where I have like my little notes that I take after I've done some little activity so that I can feel like, okay, well, this is the one pearl I'm going to actually take away. And then um, it, it's built up to the degree that like, if I am, you know, going back to that same topic, I can kind of see, oh, that's the pearl I wrote before that's outdated. Let me adjust it. Or I may add one more thing. Um, and it takes a minute cause it's on my phone and, um, I feel like if I don't do that, I just can't retain information very well. I was going to add, you know, one thing that I've been trying to get at least by trainees to, um, do is do more real-time information access. So right now we've got a lot of information resources on our computers. Uh, and we use EMR very heavily, right? So if you're in the middle of a difficult situation, you've got a complicated patient with cirrhosis and you're trying to figure out which one of those you know, 10 reasons for cirrhosis the patient may have, look up information resources right then while you're in the middle of rounds or while you're in the middle of seeing the patient because 
that's where you're going to learn the most, uh, I feel, uh, when you're seeing the patients right in front of you or while you're in the hospital. And that's sort of one, I think, sort of the uh, the mental models of uh, form might much better, I think, uh, if, if, if you could do that. Yeah, yeah, I guess we're lucky that we have so many of those available these days, aren't we? It's all, it's all there. Tom, I wanted to share a, a resource or a habit I have that, that just like everyone else, I can't create more hours in my day. So I try to sort of build in a routine of doing one digital case every morning mm. before I have my full day of ER or clinic or wards. And there's an application I use. Uh, it's the Human Diagnosis Project. But the case I did yesterday is a really great example. Um, a patient, they presented a patient who had um, an anion gap acidosis and an osmolar gap. Uh, and that got me to think of sort of toxic alcohols. And uh, they made the point that that wasn't what the patient had. And in fact, this was the entity of uh, euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis that's now being seen in patients on the new diabetes medicines. The empagliflozin mm -hmm. is what this patient was taking. And I have yet to have that experience in practice, even though some of my patients are on that. But I'm sort of aware of it. But this was my first rehearsal. Actually, I made a diagnostic error. I didn't get it right, but I, it's a rehearsal. And I learned very important uh, teaching points that the patient will not come in with polyuria and polydipsia because the, the glucose is not high, uh, because of that might have a more insidious onset than typical diabetes ketoacidosis cases. So my first rep with this entity came on the digital platform and hopefully I'll be better prepared for real life. Great example, yeah. Um... I'm so glad I don't have to look at anion gaps anymore, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but certainly plenty of patients on on those new new medications, and yeah, and, and unless you've um, even when you read some articles, I shouldn't say this working for the BMJ, but um, you know you could read an article on that, and it maybe doesn't feel like it's quite going the right place in your brain. Is that is is that what this is doing differently? That's exactly it. I've heard this term before, and I know this uh, warning that these medicines can come with this mm. new glycemic uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, but awareness was not the same as being able to retrieve it mm. in real time to solve the case. And, and again, I'm really glad I had the misstep in the digital world uh, instead of in the, the clinical world. Yeah, yeah. And it took five minutes of my day. Like that, that was uh, five minutes and the learning is done. And then I went on to see real patients for the rest of yeah. the day. Uh, although I don't know if you guys are playing Wordle these days. Are you, are you on Wordle? <laughs> I'm not, not. I've okay. seen it everywhere. Okay, but that's that's probably it. taking up that five minutes of the day, which I probably <laughs> I think should we need be to spending. come up with some kind of a <laughs> simulation game for medicine. Yeah, that idea of it gamifying though is is the right point. Like even these some of these platforms, I do they give you feedback, they tell you your performance, your streaks. Um, yeah, they gamify yeah, it easy. a bit. Okay, right. I'm gonna get get to work on that. You make my millions like the chap on, on Wordle. <laughs> uh, okay, let's go to the next one, which is a, a, a good one. Uh, they're all good, but this, this one stands out. Uh, consider bias. Who wants to take us through that one? Um, I can start with this one. Um, so yeah, when we think about um, bias, um, the impact of things like racism and ableism and sexism and all of the forms of oppression that are out there, um, we know that there really are disparities in diagnosis, just like there are disparities in outcomes for patients um, and, and treatment outcomes. Um, and so this part of our sort of piece is trying to think about how can we as clinicians um, work against that issue. The individual clinician level is important, and I'm going to talk about that, but really systems level is critical. So take everything I'm going to say with that context in mind, I think, because if we don't operate at both levels, we'll, we really won't get where we need to, to go when we think about bias. Um, and so I think the, the clinician level, the individual level things that I do, um, one of the most important ones is also one of the simplest ones, which is um, called individuation. Um, and this is the idea that um, we need to see people as individuals rather than as members of stereotyped groups. And if we can do that, then our unconscious bias is less likely to rear its head because we're seeing this person not as a member of some stereotype group, but as an individual person. And what do what does that actually mean? What do you actually do in practice? It just means getting to know your patient, right? So the power of the social history, right? The power of getting to know a little bit more about this person in their life, being able to connect with them and identify with them, 
realizing that maybe you're in the same in-group. You didn't realize that, but actually you have a lot in common with this person. And really those moments of connection, those moments of just um, getting to understand your patient really can help you kind of bypass the activation of unconscious bias. Because unfortunately, um, the debiasing world is not very successful yet, as far as I can tell, in helping us get rid of our unconscious bias. But we can try to find ways to go around it or to moderate its impact. And so I think that's that's one thing that's really helpful. Um, and then the other thing um, that I was going to um, talk about that I think is um, also important is that unconscious bias um, tends to rear its head when we're very tired, when we're very stressed, when we're burned out. Um, those are times where really we have less ability to kind of um, moderate the impact of that bias on our patients. Um, and so in my day-to-day, this also sound, will sound simple, but that really for me is about using mindfulness and using some minutes of grounding before I see a patient. So making sure I'm in a positive frame of mind that I'm kind of like going into that room with that intention of doing my very best for that patient and putting it else aside, whatever else is going on in my day. So door in the, you know, hand on the doorknob, um, sort of deep breath, a gratefulness for being, being a doctor, um, gratitude for seeing this patient. Those really little moments can help me to kind of enter that room in that right frame of mind. And I think when I do that, I find that like my ability to be empathetic is better. My ability to really attend to what the patient is saying is better. And I think I create better space for the patient to actually share their full story that if I'm just like rushing from one thing to the next without that moment, I might not do as well. So those are two, um, I think things that are easy to work into your day to day that, um, I think can help a little. Very useful. Thank you. Um, I'm reminded of this 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 idea of housekeeping. I don't know if that's the the, 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 the UK um, consultation models or experts who came up with this idea. It's just what you say. It's it's just take a moment after every patient. You've got to just like you say, ground yourself and uh, uh, or you know think about something nice. Or yeah, it does help. But you forget to do it. You get out of the habit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what what also is really interesting if you look at the mindfulness literature. Um, the like the actual physiologic impact of our emotional state on the other person that we're in, interacting with is also is real. Mm. Like people's heart rate and blood pressure goes up when we're when we're in that state, and that's not a good position to be in if you're trying to share your illness story with your clinician. I think I really credit the work of Denise and colleagues in her field, sort of letting us know that in the exam room, as much as you want to think you're a rational actor drawing on biomedical science, that forces like racism or sexism or ableism are in the room. Um, And it can be any, there's so many ways I think I'm coming to learn. Like it might be the way I learned a rash appears is from textbooks that only represent light skin. So that's my knowledge in my brain. It might be that um, uh, I have, or the patient has had experiences with the healthcare system based on the race or gender that limit communication and trust between providers. And I'm totally oblivious to that. Um, It may be that I myself have uh, absorbed epidemiologic links between diseases that are not true. You know, we, we say this happens more often in men than women or this race or ethnicity than that. They're not true, but those are all in my mind. Um, and I have no, I, I, I'm coming to learning where these come from and how I have to disregard them or check them. You know, one thing I was going to add is um, we've been trying to get clinicians, practices in you know, larger healthcare systems to think about the metrics that they're using for quality and safety, looking at it from a sort of a segmented point of view to look and see, are there any biases within these metrics? I'll give you an example. One of the big ones in the UK is late stage cancer diagnosis, emergency presentations of cancer. Um, And when you look at those, you might find with segmented data, you might find there are some groups that are overrepresented in bad, poor outcomes. And so we've been doing some work in US that we literally uh, exported from, uh, imported from UK uh, about emergency cancer presentations and late stage cancer diagnosis. And we are finding them looking at a larger scale, not maybe individual clinicians, but looking at the practice in the health system level and finding these, um, you know, through segmentation, looking at, looking at patterns of care, which might be reflective of the care that we're giving. Can I, can I add one more thing? Because I, I can't resist uh, talking about systems as well, just real quick, which is that um, 
the other thing we can do as individual clinicians is advocate. Um, so maybe we can't um, affect systems change on our daily practice, but we have an ability to advocate for things that we think are right. And I think what I would really encourage people to think about is if people have had experiences with healthcare discrimination for themselves or their families, we should really think about that as a form of complexity in an encounter. And that means more resources, which means more time, really, um, and maybe also a team-based approach um, to care is going to be even more important for that patient than someone who doesn't have those experiences of healthcare discrimination. So I think one thing I, I tr I'm trying to think about how to advocate for is how do we think about that as a form of complexity that would lead to like longer visits? Um, why is that not the case? When we think about someone with like advanced heart failure, maybe they get to have a longer visit. What if you've had multiple, multiple experiences with, um, with you know, poor care or discrimination in healthcare? Um, what should that mean for your visit? And I'll add that. Well, I'll add that our role as teachers, we're also thinking about this, you know, whether it's simple but powerful things like uh, teaching people not to put race and ethnicity in the first line summary of a patient, which has very little bearing on the diagnostic possibilities, but over elevates it in importance, if, if at all, um, expanding the resources uh, that we use to teach people about disease, as we mentioned, the example of uh, skin colors, seeing rashes and other diseases across a broad spectrum, um, teaching them some of those I, I, uh, techniques and issues that Denise raised, um, getting the diagnosis specifically, just pointing out that things that are measured even, which may seem objective, like uh, kidney function, lung function, pulse oximetry. And I think there's going to be many more we discover have sort of racial and maybe gender biasing in their in their so-called objective measurements that we use for diagnosis. All of that needs to be taught. And we're just learning how to do that well. So let's move on to the next one, which is making diagnosis a team sport. I'll, I'll start. And, um, you know, the National Academy of Medicine report that we mentioned in the paper, the number one recommendation from that report was about teamwork. Uh, we talk a lot about that in healthcare, but we don't do that very well. And it needs to be sort of thought about it at multiple levels, uh, like including the patients. So we've got nursing got other healthcare professionals, physical therapists, social workers. Um, and so it's it's not as easy to operationalize. And I'm just going to give you an example from, um, you know, recently I was attending in the hospital and I there was a complicated patient where we really needed to discuss with the radiologist about their findings after talking to them about some more story about the patient. And so I had my team walk down to radiology and we found a radiologist to speak. And we spent 30 minutes with the radiologist going over the case. It was fascinating. And my team told me later that they have never done that before in their you know, training ever, going to the radiologist and speaking to them in person. And so I've done that before with a pathologist too about a couple of years ago. And it was very similar experience that people sort of shared that nowadays everything is through the electronic medical record. And we are relying on just electronic communication and putting things in the electronic medical record, hoping that somebody will follow up. And we're losing the touch of interpersonal communication. And in, now you could do some video too. I mean, you don't have to walk down like I did in, in person, but we could do a video chat with the radiologist if you can. So I'm really, I think this is a really important one that we need to think about more as we become more and more um, dissociated with, um, amongst ourselves because of technology. I, I would just add, we have to be aware, I think, especially when we're talking about uh, working with other healthcare professionals, like our nursing colleagues, physical therapists, pharmacists, we often in the hospital have a lot of power. And so it's about inviting those people in to those conversations and flattening the hierarchy. So I, in my day-to-day -day practice, when I'm rounding with the team, I make a point of finding the bedside nurse and just saying, do you feel like we're going in the right direction? Is there anything that you've heard that it is not aligning up with what we're doing? And I can't tell you how many times a nurse will say, actually, like, yes, this thing is happening. And I don't, I, I, I've had the experience where we don't do that and we don't get that feedback. And I think it's about inviting people in valuing the really important critical feedback people have and and demonstrating that we actually really care to hear from from all these different folks on the team 
I can recall a case we had a number of years ago where a patient was admitted with um, sort of a failure to thrive picture, an elderly man losing weight, uh, anemia, petechiae, bone pains, et cetera, um, and started initiating what uncertainly was a multi-million dollar workup, rheumatologists, infectious disease doctors, hematologists, et cetera, um, talking about him at conferences. And um, the nutritionist uh, saw him and, and got to talk to him about his likes and dislikes. He had epigastric pain, which we had, of course, uh, dealt with with CT scan and scopes. And uh, she learned that uh, he didn't like eating um, fruits and vegetables, particularly fruits, because they upset his stomach so much. So he basically had a fruit-free diet, uh, which she discovered was the cause of his scurvy um, that could have been solved with a 10 cent pill for vitamin C. And it was her insight and expertise on his dietary patterns um, that we neglected to pick up on for four or five days in the hospital. Yeah, I'm just wondering how this um, how this translates in, in primary care, um, you know, which is much more, you know, it's me in my, my room and uh, there's let well I don't know maybe, maybe less opportunity for for you know asking the, yeah. the other people around at the bedside or in in the meetings, um, but but yet I feel like the term multidisciplinary team is is hard to escape in in the UK at least where you know we have these meetings where the idea is that people from different disciplines come together to to discuss patients, um, but somehow that often doesn't feel like it's it's as effective as it might be so. Um, uh, yeah, I guess it's a it's and it goes back to what you're saying, Hard Deep. Sorry about the um, the form. You know, it's easy enough to write an email, or we we have these electronic means of asking for advice. But um, it'd be nice if it was more personal, but maybe not just nice, but of higher quality. You'd say. Yeah, you know, for primary care, there's one. Uh, there's actually a nice study from um, the San Francisco area about practice inquiry, where you just get bunch of people together to talk about difficult cases, uncertain cases, um, mistakes, uh, all types of things in a sort of a team-based huddle setting. Um, the problem is finding time to do these things. Um, and, but I think mm-hmm. it would be a very powerful way of bringing you know, the team together away from sort of the usual clinic chaos uh, and you know, do some of this thinking in, in, in a team-based setting. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's the, I guess the the old fashioned clinical meeting, which a lot of practices have, but um, making sure those don't get eaten up by other things because there's yeah. always so many things to talk about, aren't there? Oh yeah, and those administrative meetings. Oh, I don't think people like really enjoy them. <laughs> it's, the, it's the ones that way you can sort of you know debrief about your patients and talk about um, you know the challenges. It could be a really powerful experience. And, and Hardy, how you, you kind of hinted at this at the beginning, but remembering that the patient is also on that diagnostic team. So I, in addition to talking to the nurse, I often say to the patient, what are you worried this could be? Um, and often get a lot of really important ideas that way. Yeah. You've got to be careful how you say it, don't you? For, for years, the response was always, well, you're the doctor. You should know. But I've, I've got more nuance. I've got, got better at asking that question. Yeah, in, in fact, we've done some work in this area. It's really challenging sometimes to communicate uncertainty to patients. And we don't do this very well, even though we should. So sort of just communicating the challenges, you know, I'm not actually sure what's going on, but your differential or the, your diagnosis could be this, this, and this. Um, inviting patients into the diagnosis is so important, but we're still learning how to do it right. I think learning what the patient is most concerned about oftentimes, uh, it doesn't mean you have to go down that uh, diagnostic pathway, but it does mean you need to address the concern in the room. And that sometimes is the most important thing to the patient. So shall we go on to number five? Um, this is to foster critical thinking. So. Gurpri, I might go to you to, to to talk us through this one. Absolutely, I think this is this is um, you know in some sense it's a, a goal in all stages of life, not just in the exam room that we want to be critical <laughs> thinkers. Um, but yeah, you know when we engage in diagnosis, we're making a judgment, right? So we're humans making a judgment, and all human judgment is imperfect. And um, I think maybe the simplest word is a little bit of skepticism and a little bit of humility around the diagnoses that we're making, that um, they may be the most logical conclusion at that point in time, 
but that they are um, subject to revision rather than um, treating it as a, a closed case uh, the moment we come to a conclusion. Yeah, and I'm going to add that, you know, this was one thing that I got interested in, um, not just in med school, but even when I started looking at the research on this topic, it was difficult to operationalize it. But then I had seen sort of this concept of healthy skepticism, which was being used in other fields, not in medicine. And I really was fascinated by this concept that, you know, when do you sort of stop yourself and say, I need to keep pursuing another path. Um, I was, um, we had a recent patient who came to us back from a nursing home where we had discharged the patient, but came back with you know, fever, um, even though we had discharged the patient on antibiotics for osteomyelitis. And, and I was like, I'm pretty sure they stopped giving the antibiotic. And the resident was like, no, he's, it says on the list here that we discharged him with antibiotics. And I said, no, let's call the nursing home and ask, talk to the nurse and get the story. Sure enough, we called the nursing home and realized that inadvertently the patient was not getting the antibiotic uh, because we, it was lost in translation. So unless we had sort of pushed ourselves to do that extra step, sort of questioning the diagnosis of, you know, or questioning the fact that he was still taking medicine, we would not have found that out easily. So it does take an extra step. It does require effort and that's why it becomes harder. If, if you're working with learners, I think another pearl that I learned from one of um, another great uh, doc here at uh, UCSF um, who practices at the general is Beth Harleman, um, who says to her team at the beginning of working with them, I really don't want you to feel like you need to tie up this uh, case in a bow. Actually, what I want you to do is tell me the things that don't fit. Um, I, that's what I want you to focus on when you talk to me about the patient, um, because that is going to help us to make sure that we are kind of taking a step back and not just going forward with this sort of, um, well, we've got to make a diagnosis and move along. Yeah, I, I, um, I suppose it, it's a challenge in writing your notes sometimes, isn't it? That, that you, you I don't know how to, how to say this, but um, yeah, you want to try and make it look like at the end of it, you've reached some intelligent uh, ideas. But you know, it's interesting that you say that about notes. Notes, of course, are, you know, they're sometimes quite a chore, but every once in a while you find yourself typing things out. And as you're typing, you mm. might say, boy, I, I really, um, I really uh, went in this one direction as I'm writing. It doesn't even make sense to me anymore. <laughs> Why did I discount that fever? <laughs> or what on earth was I thinking that the jaundice was benign? Um, and it just shows you that, you know, these cognitive biases that we can have where we anchor and we fall in love with the first diagnosis and don't budge, or if we're trying to navigate between appendicitis and gastroenteritis. You just keep looking for the evidence that um, favors the tidier or neater diagnosis. We're all subject to them. <laughs> Um, and sometimes talking it out with someone else or putting it on paper um, makes it apparent to yourself. Uh, but that willingness to say, actually, I'm wrong. And now that this stage, I'm going to call the patient back. Or um, I, I had one stance with the nurse or my consultant, and I'm going to change my own tune and let them know that. Uh, it's the critical thinking yeah. that we're talking about. Okay, let's just underscore what Gurpreet said earlier about humility. I think that's one thing that we really could work on. And that's it's hard. And some of those could be personality characteristics. Uh, you know, as physicians, we are meant to be a bit more overconfident because otherwise patients won't come back to us, right? Um, but to have that internal humility to go back and say, you know, I could be wrong. I need to keep pursuing that other path. Um, it, it's hard, but we need to do that. The conversation we've had thus far is, is quite hospital-based, uh, though the points are obviously applicable to all, all aspects, all tiers of healthcare. But I wonder if we're, we're missing something here about the, the lack of communication between general practice and hospital medicine. Um, have you been thinking about how we can close that gap and, and, and get more out of those conversations um, that we've been talking about? I can start. I think the electronic medical record system could be a huge uh, player in this, if we can do this right. Right now, as you said, you know, we might be getting some letters, standard letters, but I think it could be a medium to communicate much more information than we are doing in a in in a you know in the EMR right now. It will require work. We actually had a recent paper on this uh, in BMJ Quality and Safety about how do you build the health information technology infrastructure to create feedback systems from let's say 
you know, the ICU where the ER doctor sent the patient or the ER clinician sent the patient, what happened to that patient? Getting that information back in a meaningful way so that it's not a huge burden for the ICU team that generates mm. the feedback, as well as the ER clinician who looks at that feedback. Because remember, this is we got to make it a part of day-to-day thinking and day-to-day work. And that's a challenge because I need to spend time generating, you know, here's the patient that you send me, this is what happened to them. And on the other side, the ED clinician will have, you know, five patients a day, for instance, that they send to other places where they need to figure out what happened to these people. So we need to sort of make sure that it fits within the workflow of the people who are generating as well as receiving feedback. And I will add, I think there's just a human tendency, you know, uh, feedback should be a conversation, right? It should, we should try not to make it unidirectional. Time is an issue, but I thought in my own behavior, I'm most reticent to have a feedback conversation in the EMR. Uh, maybe by email, I'd be a little more comfortable doing it. By a chat function, I'm even more comfortable doing it. But if I'm honest with myself, nothing beats, you know, phone or in really in person, um, that voice mm. back and forth. So I think, you know, technology will facilitate it, but I think the feedback that everyone craves is a conversation. And also, like you, it's actually a lot faster sometimes, especially when there's a confusing situation. Um, if I try to communicate that in a discharge summary, and then a primary care physician is trying to figure out what I what I actually am saying, I think there are cases where I will call um, at the time of discharge to like alert someone. Like we actually aren't quite sure still what's going on with this person. This is what we did, but I'm not sure. And I I, I think just really kind of earmarking that for somebody uh, in a quick phone call can really go a long way. Um, we can't do that with every patient, obviously, but I think there's times where that's appropriate. If we can make that happen, be much better. I'm a huge interpersonal communication fan. The problem is, you know, when we build these things into the EMR, things get lost, but on the phone, you can't get hold of people easily. So unless we do this in a very structured fashion, whether it's either interpersonal communication or informational through the EMR or through chat, we've got to have a structured way to do it so that both parties are there together. Yeah. And it's also just a nice thing to talk to another colleague about yes. a patient. That's one of the joys it's, of medicine, right? That we have yeah. the joy of interacting with our patients and that we have the joy of interacting with each other. And I think the conversation um, captures the last And I've enjoyed this interaction with, with you three um, inc- incredibly. It's been a really interesting uh, conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Yeah, this is a pleasure, Tom. We enjoyed writing the paper. We had a great working with Denise and Gurpreet on this. And thank you for uh, inviting us here. I um, hope to ha- cross paths again. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next time with Jenny and Navjoy talking about great explanations. So make sure you subscribe to hear that. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. I'm Tom Nolan, and this is Deep Breath In. Thanks for listening.